This summer, European Championship football returns to England for the first time in 24 years. Euro 96 took place in a different world. It was a time closer to the three-day week, the Vietnam War and the eradication of smallpox than the present day. Only 2% of the population had a reliable internet connection. English football had welcomed the start of the Premier League only four years earlier, but had endured embarrassment at Euro 92 and absence from USA 94. Despite that, the tournament captured the national imagination and came to sum up a moment in both our footballing and cultural history. That's why the new issue of 442 magazine is a Euro 96 special, and today we'll be talking about the whole damn thing. I'm Connor Pope, and I'm joined by Gary Parkinson, who wrote this month's cover feature, 442 editor James Andrew, and writer Chris Flanagan. So the new issue with 442 has just come out. It's a Euro 96 special. Chris Flanagan, can I start with, uh, can we just ask why why 442 has done a Euro 96 special in a year that is not a particular anniversary of Euro 96? Well, it, it isn't, but this this is the first issue of 2020, the year that the Euros is going to be back in England again for the first time since 96. And I think there's, you know, excitement about that and, and the prospects of England. It's nice to look back at, that tournament in '96, when it was at home, and it, I think for a, you know, for for myself, and I'm, I'm I'm sure an awful lot of people, there's just still such affection for that tournament. Obviously, England did very well, well until the semi-finals, anyway, <laughs> as, well, as we'll get to later on. But <laughs> but yeah, I think there's fond memories about how England played and just the general feeling around that era, that nine that '90s era, and that, and that tournament in particular. So it seemed nice to to celebrate that and and also you know, have a magazine there for people to kind of keep as a kind of collector's item. James, Andrew, this is your first issue as 442 editor. Is there an element of this that is about, it was the early years of 442 as a magazine and and actually that sense of excitement, I think, possibly helped the mag grow in its early years. Uh, that kind of like play into the idea of this at all? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, um, as you said, 442 would have been uh, two years old at this point coming out in 1994 and I think it was just an exciting time not just with Euro 96 but the other things that we cover in the magazine at that time the likes of fantasy football which uh, started 26 years ago this week another big anniversary (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, and you know the commentary rivalry of the likes of uh, John Watson and Barry Davis which because there was less football on TV you know, was uh, it was a, a sort of bigger thing, you know, who was getting the big matches at um, tournaments or on match of the day. Um, now, I think you'd probably struggle to name, other than Martin Tyler, too many other uh, commentators. That's, you know, Sky or BT. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but it was a big thing back then. So I think that, you know, just remembering all that is, is sort of interesting. And, and also it was the first time, well, since 1966 that we'd had a tournament over in this country. Yeah. And uh, it meant that, you know, stars from across Europe came and, and some of them stayed, it as, does, as it, revealed, it, revealed in the magazine. Yeah, it does, of it does feel like a completely different era of football, doesn't it? I mean, obviously it is, but it does feel almost unimaginably different, like in terms of how much was on television, in terms of seeing these stars come to this country that you would never kind of expect to. It feels completely separate to how we feel about football today. Yeah, I think if, if, if you think if you look at somebody like Baborski, for example, if, if he was playing today everybody would know absolutely everything about him because of the amount of television. Um, you know, football gets around the world on television, plus social media, the internet. No, 
it just wasn't like that in 96. So, you know, seeing somebody like him with his, um, you know, his, his, his long hair and uh, scoring goals like that, he, he, you know, and other players as well. I mean, Davos Suka um, was another star of the tournament. They, they, they just weren't known as much. You had to read, yeah. you'd, ha- you'd have to be reading magazines like 442 to even have a chance of knowing who these people were. Gary, you wrote the main feature in this uh, in this issue. It's called Summer of Love, which apparently is how we're referencing the mid-90s now. Um, how did you go about writing it? How much of it was purely from your own memories of watching <laughs> football in the mid-90s? I, re- uh, I, I remembered a lot of it, uh, <laughs> but I am a trained journalist and I researched a lot of it as well. Um, a lot of it came together. I, I was aware that there was becoming a, a slightly revisionist idea of Euro 96 as being a wholly brilliant tournament, um, 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 one in which England were impeccable from start to finish and one in which it was always sunshine. And, you know, th- things do get reduced a little over time. You do get a reduction, reductionist view of history. Um, I didn't exactly want to go in two-footed on Euro 96, but it was a bit of both. Uh, and, you know, one, one of the examples is people have have or have had the idea that England played a back three all the way through the tournament. They didn't. They played a number of different systems and that in itself was revolutionary. But it, it's a bit like Italian 90. Everybody thinks that England played with a back three all, almost all the way through. They didn't. They played and then reverted. So history is, is often more nuanced and a lot more interesting than a tweet-length idea makes out. Yeah, because, I mean, even for someone of my age who really barely remembers Euro 96 happening, I, th- I think the game's run, but I don't have any proper memories of it. And there is this idea of it, of mm. just a, you know, 2012 Olympic-style celebration uh, that carried on all summer. Um, but there, there was an element to that. There was an element. I mean, I'm not denying that, yeah. that, that that happened. And, you know, I spent, I was I was 22 by this point. I was a grand old man. <laughs> And I spent many happy hours in the pub watching watching the game, and you know there was some good football to see. It's it's an interesting hinge in history, uh, Euro '96, because it's it's slightly later than the '92 '93 hinge when we got the Premier League and the Champions League mm. coming in, and Sky and, and and all the rest of that, and, and a media revolution. More people had been subscribing to satellite TV. More players were coming over. To, to reduce this isolationism that, that English football had had. Um, coming off the back of the Heisel ban as well, I mean, I know that was slightly earlier, but the Premier League was starting to really assert itself, mm. both financially and more importantly for the fans, on the pitch. It was starting to change. And Terry Venables was something of an avatar of that with, with a much more continental, interesting level of football, type of football than particularly had been happening on the Graham Taylor. Yeah, I think it was the first Euros that had the, the new back pass rule that had come in after Euro 92. Correct. It was the first one with golden goal. It was the first one... First one with three points for a win. Yeah, the first three points for a win. First one expanded to 16 mm-hmm. teams after the fall of the Soviet Union. So in a lot of ways, it did feel like a very internationally, a very different kind of tournament. But uh, you mentioned Terry Venables there. I kind of want to ask you all about Terry Venables because I want to get an idea of how he was perceived as a manager coming into the England job. He'd obviously managed Barcelona for a while. He'd managed Spurs for a bit. And he was looked over by the FA for the England job in 1990 after Bobby Robson left. So was there a sense of excitement around him? Or or was it a bit like when Southgate took over and actually people were slightly less enthused? 
I think it was very different to the Southgate mm. thing. I mean, for, for Southgate, they kind of wanted an England man after the Sam Allardyce debacle. Yeah. And, um, and that that's a very different thing, I think. Um, Venables, I mean, I, I don't know whether you can tell due to my received pronunciation, but I, I grew up in the North, and the the view of Terry Venables in uh, in in the North was not entirely uh, glorious. Uh, he was seen as a bit of a smarmy Cockney spiv, to be honest. <laughs> um, and his, his self-admitted ad, self uh, preference for Tottenham players or players he'd worked mm. with before didn't work in his favour because uh, somebody like Teddy Sheringham or Darren Anderton was not necessarily in everyone's pub, you know, pub table England football team. Right. Nowadays, we have this idea of um, Harry Redknapp as, as the Arthur Daly of football. Terry Venables was like the Arthur Daly of football and business. He did have several businesses which were under investigation. Mm. And that's safe. You don't have to check that with a lawyer. <laughs> he was going through the courts. Uh, or should, should I say that, you know, he was he was involved in several court cases around his business, let's say, around his various businesses and Scribes West and all that. And he was a very geezerish, uh, he had a very geezerish um image, which wasn't entirely fair because he was far cleverer than that. He was far more tactically astute than that image would suggest. Mm. He had, you know, been over to Barcelona. He was deeply ashamed, as a, as a proud Englishman, he was deeply ashamed of how reduced English football had become under Graham Taylor to really terrible 4-4-2 table football. Not that there's anything wrong with 4-4-2, the magazine, obviously. <laughs> uh, straightforward 4-4-2 formation, table football, knock it up to the big lad, can we not knock it, hit Les kind of stuff. Yeah. It had become a joke around Europe if it wasn't already. There was, there'd was there been signs under Bobby Robson that England could play differently. Uh, those had gone way out of the window under Graham Taylor. I mean, yeah, I think, I think that was the, the big thing in Venable's favour is that he wasn't Graham Taylor, basically. I think, <laughs> I think people were... People around the country were, were you know, Taylor was so unpo unpopular with people around the country for how things had gone in missing out of the World Cup that basically anyone who had any sort of track record, which obviously Venables did have mm. a track record, you know, I think people were willing to give him a chance and say, well, let's let's give this a go and, and see how it goes. I mean, I guess the, the the one interesting thing is for, for two years, there was no real way of judging Venables because there were no competitive matches from from 93 to 96, not not one competitive match. Yeah. Um, because they didn't have to qualify, obviously. Yeah. Um, so it was only once you got to that Switzerland game at the start of the United States, you'd actually st really start judging Terry Venables as England manager. And that, that Switzerland game was seen as a bit of a damp squib, wasn't it? It was a, mm. it was a draw. It, it sounded like a bit of a drab game. Did, uh, I mean, is there a sense that maybe this slightly put the dampness on and everyone thought, here we go again, after missing 94, yeah. after doing so badly in 92? Well, I think as well, because it, that was obviously the first game since the dentist chair incident. There'd been a lot of, a, a huge furore about that in the media. And as soon as that Switzerland game happened and they didn't win, everyone said, well, your preparations were terrible. Yeah. This is why. And, and yeah, it was starting to look not good at that point that this could be a tournament that goes horribly, horribly wrong for England. Thankfully, it's good turned it, after that. I, I, I can I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, though, Chris. But I, um, I think it's important to say there wasn't the kind of Twitter mob mentality mm. that there is nowadays. Yes, people at the bar in the pub might be going, "England are a bit rubbish." England are always a bit rubbish, but it wasn't right. Let's get rid of you know. It wasn't no, throw no. everything out. No, everything no. is terrible yeah. as it as it seems yeah. to be. I'm sounding like a terrible old, <laughs> old duffer when I say that. But you know, one loss and everything's rubbish. Mm. There was there was a kind of 
at least we tried to play football. Mm. Um, I, I think the criticism was more from the press, wasn't it, after that game? The press the, will yeah. always turn yeah, yeah. things to black and white. Yeah, yeah. The old, I mean, literally, yeah. in the olden days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did have colour presses, by <laughs> then. I'm not that old. But, um, yeah, it, it was... The, 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 the narrative, the hashtag narrative of uh, England, what had become, they're all boozy, they can't be trusted, mm. you know, this isn't going to work. No real idea what to do next, mm. except probably drop Gascoigne was the idea. Mm. Attendances at Wembley in the run-up had been incredibly low. Chris, obviously, as you mentioned, there weren't competitive games, these were only friendlies. Mm. But I would have expected to see more excitement ahead of a big tournament well, in England. Well, you've got to bear in mind, a run of friendly after friendly after friendly gets a bit, gets a bit boring for fans, I think, as well. And also, you've got to factor in yeah. that Wembley, we're talking the old Wembley, and the old Wembley was not very nice. Uh, that By that stage, it was starting to fall down, basically. Um, <laughs> so, unless unless you go into a big, a big occasion, that, that wasn't a nice stadium to go and visit on a, on a Wednesday night for a friendly against someone... Uh, you know, a meaningless match. Yeah. So I can I can kind of understand it for that. I mean, certainly, you know, over that period, attendances weren't what they are now at the new Wembley. Um, no, it wasn't an entertainment event going mm, to watch a football match. Yeah. It was something you went to because you felt you had to and you didn't feel you had to go to a friendly game. That's it. I, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but I don't think uh, even your own World Cup qualifiers were particularly well attended. Mm. They, didn't, they very rarely sold out from memory. Yeah. You know, so it's not like England had an enormous match going fan base because as Chris says, Wem- Wembley was a trial. It wasn't a pleasure. And, you know, people complain now about getting there and, and, and the transport and, and, you know. I think, the, I think the games in the run-up were, uh, a few of them were around 20,000 at Wembley, which is yeah. an astonishingly low number. But I think, I seem to remember Gary Lineker saying that he played in front of similar-sized crowds uh, mm. for England, obviously, back in the 1980s. Um, yeah. We go on to the squad. We talked a little bit about the tactics, but were there any surprise inclusions in the squad? Was there anyone that perhaps was a surprise exclusion from the squad. I mean, particularly strikers around that time, England had a fantastic quality up front and you couldn't fit them all in the squad. Yeah, um, Andy Cole seems to have been out of favour, for instance. He, yeah. he was the coming man. Yeah, Stan, Stan Collymore as well, I think, around that time probably would have had a shout to get in the squad. Yeah, Ian Wright never went to a tournament. Yeah, um, I don't know what his form... I can't quite remember what his form was like going into 96, but you know, he, he, he was a sort of form... Striker of that sort of early nineties period. I mean, he'd probably gone to ninety four had we qualified. I mean, one thing I'll say about the squad is, uh, looking at this morning, you've got three players there who who had played or were playing in Italy at the time. I think Platt had just come back. Ince was still out there, and Gazza had just come back. He was at Rangers, and that was the best league in um, in Europe at the time. I think wasn't it in those early nineties? Mm. Other than that, I mean, Neville had been in since had been in for about a year but he was still young he came in and Rob Jones got injured I think and then never returned it's there was a substantial rejuvenation of the squad right I mean uh, so I didn't remember this but I did the research <laughs> I've got it written down here um, only nine of the 22 had more than 10 caps pre-tournament yeah um, whereas for Bobby Robson's Euro 88 squad that was 17 out of 20 yeah, you know, the, yeah. I mean, that's obviously it's not the same squad, but whereas Bobby Robson trusted his old generals and had some good players mm. to call on, but you know, I, mean, I suppose the example would be Peter Shilton. Yeah. I think he's still diving for some of them penalties in Chile because <laughs> uh, he was in his 40s, and I know what it's like as a man in his 40s. It's not easy to get down for penalties. Um, 
It's not easy to get down from the table at some point. Um, but yeah, the, he had a definite aim in mind. And to be honest, some of Graham Taylor's squad did need a bit of a turfy night. You know, yeah. there, there was a lot of bath water to go out and not much baby. Um, there was, uh, you know, a, a squad in which Carlton Palmer is a fixture cannot be a good squad. <laughs> well, I think you look, you look at the United States squad though, and and. Uh, Quite a lot of those players either were leaders at the time or, or became leaders in their career. I mean, you look at the team, you've got people like Adams, Pierce, Shearer, Neville, Ince, Southgate, you know, you know, all, all strong characters and leaders there. That mm. I think, you know, sometimes England teams in the past have, have lacked that. We certainly can't say it about that, that year in 1916. They certainly had plenty of character and plenty of leaders and you could probably see that from how they played in that tournament. And because we're looking back from the end of the tournament as well, uh, from the end of the, the careers, it's, it, we now probably think of Steve McManaman and Darren Anderson as quite old players, but they were very young at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they were about twenty-one, twenty-two. Uh, they hadn't any tournament experience, but they were, and they were the legs and lungs of the team. Really, mm. they particularly McManaman was was often tasked with getting. Be- oh, no. Why did I say task? I hate task as a verb. Sorry, sorry for that, listeners. Uh, he was often asked to get past uh, the front two and be the runner, and that's how one of the goals came against Holland, as I recall, was him just legging it basically. <laughs> on Holland, who were the favourites going into the tournament? Obviously, they had a great team. Uh, Germany went on to win it. France won the World Cup two years later. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting that because Holland. Um, I'd actually finished second behind the Czech, Czech Republic in their group and had needed a, a playoff against Ireland at Anfield mm. um, to qualify. Despite that, Holland were the bookies' favourites. And actually, Czech Republic, who had finished above them in the group, were 16th out of 16 in the bookies, yeah. which is a bit weird, but that's that's how it was at the time. Do you think m- maybe that's down to... It felt, Ajax had got to the Champions yes. League final yeah. in the two that's years previous, and that, that felt like the, the core of the squad. Yeah. The Dutch probably had the best squad. Right, but it, it wasn't very harmonious. No, the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah. are you kidding? <laughs> Funnily enough, but I mean, I, I spoke to Paul Ince during this, and, and he was saying that within the England squad, the team that they actually thought was the best team in Europe was Spain, which I thought was quite interesting because I, yeah. I didn't necessarily remember it that way, and yeah. and obviously because the the quarterfinal against Spain was sort of not the greatest game in the world, and nothing nothing that Spain did in that game makes us think. They were amazing. They certainly, you know, they're obviously decent enough to take us to penalties, but I didn't remember them as being quite a wow team. Whereas uh, Paul Ince was saying in the English squad, I think Venables had said it to the players as well, that, that they thought Spain were the team to beat in that tournament. Yeah, there's a, there's a quote in the magazine from Venables at the time saying that, um, you know, the likes of Germany, Holland and Italy had good squads, but for him, mm. Spain were the, for, yeah, were, the, were, the, were the team to beat. Which is I'm, interesting as well, because Spain hadn't, Done much in tournaments. Yeah. Again, from from our end of the of history's telescope, yeah. it's like Spain were just waiting to burst into this wonderful, yeah. you know, Guardiola style yeah. team of but, brilliant. But also, you look you look through that Spain squad, and actually looking back with hindsight, not many of them are really renowned as no. huge world stars. Well, they? probably not in England. <laughs> no, well, no, that's true. But you know, the, okay, it's, it's different because Spain won tournaments in. But you go through that Spain squad of. 08, you know, etc. And almost all of those, even at, you know, Champions League level, have done amazing things. Whereas, 
you know, you know, some some of them have been involved with Barcelona winning the winning the European Cup, but beyond that, maybe not huge names as I remember now. Anyway, what about Italy? Because Serie A was obviously enormous in mm. in the in the nineties. Uh, looking at their squad, that looks just looking at the pictures of them celebrating goals to see those players playing together. They look fantastic. Yeah. So well, I mean, obviously they they'd come into this tournament on the back of reaching the World Cup final. So in theory, going off the previous tournament, they should have been the favourites. Mm. The one thing uh, significant. Absence was Baggio. Baggio was not at Euro 96. Um, I think there'd been issues between Saki and Baggio before that tournament, partly over Baggio's fitness, mm. and he, he'd taken the decision not to take him to the tournament. Um, they still had people like Zola, Cassiraghi, and people like that, and you know, yeah. some very good players, but the actual talisman who got them to the World Cup final in 94 wasn't there anymore. And I think in the end, you know, from what Cassiraghi said in this in this magazine, they basically assumed they beat the Czech Republic in their second game, rested five or six players, lost the Czech Republic. Then the last game was against Germany. They didn't win that game and they were out. And that was it, out in the group stage. Yeah, it's interesting with Saki because I talk about the uh, being hidebound to 4 4 2. Now, Saki was a brilliant coach who introduced a lot of uh, tactical innovations and, you know, really compressing the play. But he was a 4 4 2 man and Baggio didn't fit easily into mm-hmm. that. And Saki didn't want to you get the impression that Saki didn't want to sacrifice too much of his teamwork, which he was about. So that was one of the reasons behind mm-hmm. that. Um, and as, as you say, too much um, too much tinkering as it became known soon mm-hmm. after. It's always tinkering when you lose. It's successful mm-hmm. squadron alteration <laughs> when you win. Yes. Uh, and, and they did mess it up against the Czechs and then couldn't recover it against the Germans. But there's, mm-hmm. there's a quote in there from Saki saying, before the tournament, either I'll go home here or, or I'll go home. Mm-hmm to tomatoes and it was tomatoes yeah. it seems crazy when you've got three games in a group and one of them's against Germany to even take that risk against anyone yeah. to rest players but they were very good and still are very yes. good at oh, getting yeah. through tournaments yes, they were a yeah, tournament yeah. team in a way that England really weren't uh, in a way that Holland were in a way in a way that that, that Germany were you know the, the, and that's one of the psychological things I think about Euro 96 in the English psyche uh, that changed in that, you know, not only is England now starting to, well, is hosting what is becoming the best league in the world. So English mm. fans mm. start to feel slightly proprietal over that, even though it's the best league in the world because it's got lots of other countries' players yeah, yeah. and eventually owners and managers. Um, but um, also that England can actually get through a, a difficult group and, and through not an easy path to the, to the semi-finals, as it turned out. If you're enjoying this episode, you'll love the Euro 96 special issue of 442 Magazine, which is on sale in shops and online now. In it, we've got a long read on the tournament, a diary of every single match day, reports on all the England games, interviews with players including Paul Ince, Teddy Sheringham, Darren Anderton and Carol Poborski, profiles of Paul Gascoigne and Gareth Southgate, and the full story behind Badil and Skinner's fantasy football. You can subscribe to the magazine for £12.25 every three months, getting issues delivered to your door for less than £4 each. That's over 100 pages of brilliant football journalism 13 times a year, including Euro 2020 and new season previews. Head to myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash fftpod20 to subscribe now. You can also find that link in the show notes for this episode below. I feel like I'm going to get unanimity on this next question, but I'll I'll throw it out and see if anyone can hit me with a curveball. But uh, what was the best goal of the tournament? Most people will probably say Poborski. Yeah. I'm going to say Davos Yuka. 
Davo Shuka. Davo Fantastic. Shuka. Thank you for providing a, <laughs> a surprise. In, uh, oh, what was Davo Shuka's goal? Uh, so that was Croatia against Denmark in the group stage. I think Croatia won 3-0. And it was towards the end of the game and he was running clear. Um, Peter Schmeichel wasn't that far off his line, but Shuka just chipped it over him from about 20 yards. It was just the most perfectly arced chip into the far corner. And the fact that Peter Schmeichel played for Manchester United at the time meant that a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people in the country enjoyed that goal. <laughs> I love the way he just fell back onto his uh, <laughs> onto his back and almost just sort of flopped down. Uh, who's going to talk us through Carol Poborski's goal? Because we got a big feature on that in the magazine. It's, it's a fantastic goal, but well, I, I mean, I thought everyone was going to go for either Poborski or Gaza, so I, yeah. so I went for Shearer against Holland. Oh, uh, fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> uh, just for the team. And, yeah. Well, the pass from Sheringham really, I think, is uh, Sheringham talks talks us through that goal in the mag. It is it is a fantastic team goal. I mean, obviously, we won that game four one. But to see England playing with such fluidity, I think even now it still feels like a, a a massive tournament goal for us. Since that moment, I was trying to think of tournaments afterwards and think which England games have been... I mean, to call it comfortable is not quite the full story again because it, it wasn't comfortable at half-time. I think Barry Davis said, leading up to half-time, England need half-time badly. Mm. Um, Dutch had had four, eight corners or something in the first half and more attempts on goal. Um but in t- I mean, it was 4-1. Um, Colombia in 98 was a good performance, I felt. Denmark in 2002 and then Sweden again in 2018. But that's not many games yeah, yeah. in that time. That are, I mean, I'm not saying they're better than Holland, but mm. I'm saying, you know, England don't do very well at um, making things easy for themselves. And to be 4-0 up on the hour was, all, was, was unheard of. Um, and that goal, if it wasn't the making of England, because Gaza's goal, I think, in the game before against in Scotland was probably the making of that team in yeah. terms of getting the you know everybody uh, on side. But it was, uh, it, it, I think, it probably got the country believing that actually maybe we could do something at this tournament. I always think that Scotland goal, the, the Gascoigne goal, is quite funny because it, it is essentially just begin with a, a really long punt upfield. <laughs> it's, it's hardly a beautiful team move with Seaman banging it 80 yards up. Just after a slightly fortuitous penalty save, although I'm in credit to Seaman for that. I thought you thought the penalty save was quite good. What was the problem with it? Well, the fact that the ball rolled just as McAllister was hitting it. Oh, right. Of course he did. We will never know whether McAllister's contact with a non-rolling ball would have been meaty enough to take it past Seaman, but I mean, he did really well to... But yeah, the... um, the, ga- the Gascoigne goal, I, I, I wrote in the uh, in the piece, um, that it was a wonderful combination of practice and talent. Yeah. Because they don't, they had worked on it. You know, Sheringham came short to collect that uh, that clearance from Seaman, laid it off to Anderton, who then knocked it in. So it's third man running for Gascoigne. But by the time Sheringham's co- um, trapping the ball, Gascoigne's already gone. He knows what's going to happen. Then Anderton gets it to him in the box. After that, Instinct, technique, wonderful stuff. Unless you're Scottish, or <laughs> anybody else that hates the English, in which case you're not. Let's face it, you're, you're not going to have got through this far through the podcast. Um, and you know, to, to flick it over and just the the casual ease with which he scored. Although it's still not me. Fa- I still don't think it's the best goal of the tournament. I just think it's important. And is that the Poborski goal? 
Are no, you I, me? I oh love. I, <laughs> Someone's going to talk us through the bloody pause. I, I will go. do if you want. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just explain. Let's see Gary's foot. stupid opinion about some <laughs> random Romania goal that was Ob- actually fantastic. Obviously, it's Croatia's late winner against Turkey. Oh, right. yeah. And you've got, yes. you've got, you're at the home of football, the city ground, and you've and you've uh, you've got two tournament debutants, two Euros debutants, um, Croatia and Turkey. Turkey are pushing for a winner. Uh, they've got a corner. It comes to Alpi on the edge of the box. That's who you really want it to come mm. to on the edge of the box. So he obviously fails to control it, as, as uh, anybody that watched Alpi play will remember. Alyosa Asanovic nips in, and he starts, and, and he's 20 yards out from his own goal, and he starts hurtling sideways toward the main stand at, uh, at the city ground. And you're thinking, what is he doing? Suddenly, with his left foot, pings a diagonal to Goran Vlajevic just outside the centre circle. Nobody else had seen that. The cameras hadn't seen it at all. Vlajevic knows what he's doing. Asanovic gets onto it. Um, a Turkish defender who I can't remember who it was, and I've watched the video, but he's just a blur. He's, <laughs> um, comes flying in completely ill-advisedly. Vlajevic just megs him and runs on. One touches at the edge of the box. Another, t- uh, He drops his shoulder, puts Rostu Rekba on his backside, uh, goes past him and just tucks it in from the edge. And it's about 13 seconds, I think, from Alpai having it in the D to... Vlajevic having it in the net at the other end and it's just a wonderful yeah. counter-attacking goal but technically and also a bit of defensive stupidity you need that in a goal yeah. I, think. I did love that goal I, mean, I, I kind of uh, I always admired going Vlajevic for years after that even though I can't remember a single other thing he did in his career <laughs> but I always thought oh going Vlajevic I like him <laughs> and, and Chris didn't Karol Poborski Karol score Poborski a goal, in scored a goal. <laughs> yes he did he did in the quarterfinals against Portugal yeah um, it was interesting actually we've we, we, you know, he, he's uh, done a big interview in this magazine. And actually, I mean, the the goal was a, a very... In- I mean, I'd never seen a goal like that before, which I think was why it captured the imagination mm. of everyone. That it wasn't a chip, it wasn't a lob, it was sort of a weird sort of scoop sort of goal, mm. which people just didn't do. Yeah. Um, Although we're doing it on parks and uh, playgrounds for days after well, the More balls on roofs after that than you've seen in So I think I've played in a kid's game about a year after that. And I was clean through on goal. And for some for, for some reason, I thought, Karol Poborski, I'll do a Karol Poborski. Um, didn't go so well. It ball, ball barely left the ground. Went straight to the goalkeeper. I'm thinking, I shouldn't have done that. I should have kicked it normally. Um, and how was your subsequent transfer to Manchester United? Um, almost as successful as his. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but no, it was it was a fantastic goal. It was interesting, actually, that, that he said in the interview that he thought he was going over. He... he he thought there was no chance he was going to, going to drop under the bar and probably everyone thought the same because mm. it was such a weird trajectory. It went so high, but then just dropped like a stone into the into the net. And it was everyone was like, what on earth was that? And I think it just captured people's imagination for that reason. Obviously, he had the, this hair, he looked different as well. And yeah. he'd, he'd come from Slavia Prague, which obviously people didn't, People didn't know. People hadn't seen much of Slavia Prague. Yeah, and they didn't know the Czech Republic, a new team. Yes, and, yeah, you know, yeah. But, exactly. Yeah, and and as as James touched on before, that exoticism you mm. don't get exotic football anymore unless you're going to watch a ridiculous reserve well you should know go to <laughs> Chris Flanagan the man that goes to the second division games in Hungary absolutely <laughs> you know unless you're going to get that I mean you, the search for exoticism is quite difficult it these is, days in is. a saturated football but you know people didn't know a lot of people didn't know where the Czech Republic was because mm. it was also quite a new I mean did, is that Czechoslovakia is that the same place yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and, and, and they didn't know where it was but also 
and on a technical level, as you said, it's like the Cruyff term. When something new happened mm. and something new tended to happen in big tournaments then, for some reason, or you remember them, or, you know, the Roger Miller dance or whatever, it became, it was like everybody was talking about it. It was the water cooler moment. Mm. Can I ask, um, obviously there was these moments of brilliance, these fantastic goals we, we talk about, but overall sometimes the standard of football wasn't fantastic and the golden goal rule didn't last particularly long because people felt that it made extra time too defensive um, and too standoffish. If a, and and possibly, you know, connected to this, outside of Wembley, a lot of these stadiums didn't full up. Do you think if there was a, uh, a European Championships came back to England fully mm. uh, in the near future, so not just at Wembley. Do you think we would still see the struggle to take a pickup for seeing no. two random no, teams? No, I think it's changed. No, I, I agree. I think it has changed. I think maybe before, but definitely London 2012, you saw how venues just sold out for that. Mm. Saw the Cricket World Cup last year, that sold out every game. You know, England... Well, Britain does tournaments very well now, and I, it may be before London 2012, but I think 2012 was certainly a, um, a start of us, uh, you know, being very good hosts uh, right. of, of tournaments. So I think if, if 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 England were to host a tournament, I think I think it would be very good. I mean, I don't think tickets were exorbitantly expensive, but I mean, there was one there was one that was uh, particularly poorly attended on uh, at St James's Park. But it was on a Thursday afternoon, mm. you know. So that's not just finances. Yeah, that's yeah, either course. either you're at work or school or you're unemployed. In which mm. case, you, either way, you're not going to go and watch. Oh, I can't remember. It was oh, it's Romania, Bulgaria. Romania, but having said that, I think you put that game on in St James's Park now in, yeah. in the yeah, summer and it'd be full, even yeah, on a Thursday afternoon. I mean, the yeah. the, the mid nineties, we, we the you know the the British public were just coming out of a fairly hard work. It wasn't a recession, technically, by economic standards, um, you know, by very close economic definitions, but there had been some straightening of times. John Major did not have a very successful premiership from 92 to 97, uh, 91 to 97, I think it was. Uh, it, It was... Times were quite hard. You know, I don't want to play the Horvis music, but people weren't spending... um, enough money, obviously, yeah. on Romania, Bulgaria, or, or whatever it was. The, there was a lot of interest in the tournament, but not necessarily a lot of interest in paying to go and watch it. There would, there'd be a lot more now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So the Spain game, let's come on to that. England win it with a penalty shootout. I often feel like this is conveniently forgotten from England's 
kind of pantheon and its national trauma around mm. penalty shootouts. Well, there's a very good reason for that. <laughs> we lost a penalty, <laughs> penalty shootout four days later. Right. <laughs> but is that is is that just why? Is it just that it doesn't really fit the pattern? And then we, oh, we yeah. lost to the Germans. I mean, yeah. Sadly, <laughs> sadly, the more important game was four days later, <laughs> and that's the one we remember. <laughs> so the Spain game was sort of yeah. well, not meaningless, but you know. The whole point was trying to win the tournament, and then we messed up another penalty shootout so soon afterwards. That sadly, there was there was definitely a feeling of it. But it's, it's, I was talking with uh, Andy Murray, Spanish Andy, because I handed over the the Spain game to him. It's mm. the only part of the uh, cover feature that I didn't write because he's just better than me at all things uh, Hispanic. And, and I was pointing out that England had only lost one penalty shootout before then. You know the the penalty shootout. Yes, Turin comes mm. up. Uh, and and then you know Southgate at, at Wembley in '96, but after the Spain game, it was lost one one one. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it became much worse thereafter for England. It became much more of a bet noir, mm. peccadillo, yeah, yeah. monkey what? on the back, whatever you want to call it. Um, at the time, and and Andy's piece, it's, um, he asks some of the Spanish players whether they knew about England's attitude to penalties. Like, no, why would we? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, not, it's not just parochialism that England are obsessed with penalties. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Dutch and the Italians have, at various times had equally bad re- or, or even worse, mathematically, yeah. re- records with penalties. Um, so, and we've never lost one in a World Cup final. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> you know, but as, as um, uh, one of the Spanish players says in, in Andy's piece, Andy, that Andy spoke to, um, they didn't victimise the players that mm. missed or had a penalty mm. saved. I'm always careful to say those things. Uh, um, ERO at the bar and somebody had a penalty N- saved. Nadal. Um, Nadal. Yeah, uh, Miguel and uh, yeah, yeah. Angel Nadal. Thank you. So, the- uh, so, yeah, England again. And I think, again, it's the press. The, obviously, the tabloid press, mm. darling, not 442 magazine. <laughs> um, has a, has a habit, yeah, has a habit of singling out uh, victims and blame-storming, basically, as it became normalised. Uh, on the topic of the press, James, we've got uh, some fantastic quotes from Piers Morgan uh, in the magazine. Uh, ahead of the Germany game, the Mirror ran a front page that said, uh, Achtung, surrender, for you, the Euros is over, Fritz, or something like that. Piers Morgan, uh, who I'm sure people are too familiar with, uh, was editor of the Daily Mirror at the time. Um, what does he say about that front page now? Well, I mean, the headline on our piece, um, we got it wrong. <laughs> I, I'm, not sure, uh, I'm not sure he would uh, say that about anything that he says at the moment yeah, on yeah, uh, yeah. Good Morning Britain or on um, Twitter. But it does seem in this, in this piece, I mean, Chris spoke to him for this, uh, that, and bear in mind, there was, and again, there was no social media. So, you know, backlash was people writing letters or phoning, mm. you know, newspaper hotline hotlines or uh, um you know that you couldn't go and um vent your anger in 140 characters or 200 yeah, yeah. whatever it is now um but he said you know obviously this front page um but there was more to it they were <laughs> we're going to drive a tank um <laughs> to the build um offices in berlin and then they were going to um fly a spitfire over the germany um training camp and uh, drop um, copies of the Daily Mirror down on them. Um, I, mean, I mean, we're giggling, but it's that kind of like embarrassed <laughs> laughter where it's like, mm. how did this ever well, become a... Yeah, I mean, basically he said, I mean, they were going to do that on the day after this. Oh, right, okay. front page. 
And then the, the reaction was so bad to that front page that basically the Spitfire was on the runway, ready to go with the with the with the newspapers over the German training ground, and they had to say, "My God!" Right, they so had to people stop must it on the runway. people must have sent in these letters first class. As right. well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, there wasn't a rolling twenty four hour news cycle. Yeah, you know, yeah. Jen, James mentions that, uh, but also, I mean, we now see the headlines. I mean, you used to be able to do that if you were stood outside news agents at 11 o'clock at night in London. You know, you could see the you could see the newspapers at King's Cross Station. But, you know, now all the newspapers front covers are for the next day are tweeted. They're on uh, News 24 and things yeah, like yeah. that. You know what the next day's uh, agenda is going to be uh, by before you go to bed, unless you go to bed really early. Uh, so, so what does he think about getting it wrong? What does he say about that? Well, I mean... Uh, it was interesting because I met him at an event and I, I, I wondered, first of all, when I said that I wanted to speak about Euro 96, he might think, oh, I don't want to go over that. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I introduced the subject, I thought, well, knowing what Piers Morgan's like on Twitter, he'll still be like, in some way, he'll still say, well, I was, you know, mm. it was justifiable or something. But no, he, he actually, he, he was he was very, he held his hands up straight away and said, look, I got it wrong. I, I can't I can't defend what, what we did. Yeah. Um, he kind of basically. I mean, he, he did say that at that time, it wasn't just the mirror that that a lot of the tabloids had that sort of jingoistic uh, attitude. Um, I mean, I, I was young then, so I can't remember the exact ins and outs of. I mean, you know, uh, there's probably some truth in that. I, I can't. can't remember exactly <laughs> what what that climate was like, but yeah, he did say that 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 was a general attitude around all the tabloids, and that obviously. That was probably the turning point of the end of that, basically, when people reacted badly to that front page. Both them and all the other tabloids said, okay, so what, that's a wake-up call now. We've got to stop doing that. People people don't want that anymore. Yeah, they still do it to an extent. There's a fantastic Wait, dissimilating so um, quote from Stuart Higgins, who was mm. the editor of The Sun by now, saying, oh, we're, we're, we're nationalistic, but we're not jingoistic, or the other way around. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember what fine uh, division <laughs> he's, he's making there. But, I mean, Higgins had replaced Kelvin McKenzie, who was um, Morgan's mentor, because Morgan started at The Sun. And... Oh, horrific as it was, and I completely disagree with everything he did and pretty mm. much everything he's done since. In terms of a Kelvin McKenzie, current Bond style stunt, mm. it's very well thought out. I mean, that's not to say that it's in any way acceptable, but it was, it, this was, he would probably call it God's or journalism or, or give it some, that, you know, some kind yeah, of glorification yeah, yeah. that way. It was a very, and you have to remember that um, Morgan had gone to the mirror because the mirror was struggling. So the mirror was trying to outsun the sun as the sun stepped back because this, because well, Kevin Kelvin, nobody's going to follow Kelvin McKenzie yeah, yeah. and be madder than Kelvin McKenzie. I mean, you, you, I don't know what <laughs> working in a place where the the person in charge is completely insane. You're not going to out insane that person. You have to change it. <laughs> Uh, so the sun kind of slightly mellowed on the Stuart Higgins, um, whereas the mirror just went full on. You know, let's let's try and be even more wacky. And Mackenzie, um, sorry, Morgan, <laughs> very different, but also very similar. Uh, Morgan was doing it all the way through. I mean, for for the Spain game, he had he had a, a beef eater standing over a matador with you know with a beef eater's axe ready to mm. be. It's just it seems horrific now and it was horrific to most people then yeah. but because i guess sales went up on the day of the um on the day of the the matador front yeah. cover morgan probably went well let's crank it up to 12 then yeah. um but I've, sales probably went up because it was a big day not because it's 
I find it uh, particularly interesting that Morgan says that you wouldn't get xenophobic front pages on the uh, on the tabloids these days, which um, <laughs> I raise my eyebrows at. <laughs> um, Germany, the Germany game, obviously the trauma that kind of lives on that picture of Southgate with his head in his hands, the Gaza missing by inches. Um, I don't know, Gary, you're probably best placed to kind of explain how... Did it really feel like England were going to win? How how big a come down was it after that? I think it entirely depends on your um, positive on your positivity or negativity on the way to a game. I mean, I have good friends that I go watching um, football with, and I, and I love them very much. But mm-hmm. I may, in the moment, on the way to the game, we may have very very different views on how it's going to be. You know, some people are naturally ebullient to the point of foolishness. <laughs> Some people are naturally uh, negative to the point of miserabilism. And there is a there's an entire spectrum in between. You know, it's not as if everybody in everybody wearing an England shirt, hastily bought England shirt, went into the Germany game going, well, this is gonna be easy. Mm. We're three, four, you know, it's called four against <laughs> we're on the we're on a roll now. There, there was a realism right. that, that Germany were I mean, they were not a very good team. But Germany were Germany, and Germany mm. were very good at winning football matches, uh, and had been for. I mean, it's very different now because they had a, a, a wilderness period of oh, maybe twelve years back there when they weren't mm. very good. Um, when while well, they were completely re- rebuilt, but they had been astonishingly good at reaching finals and winning trophies for t- 20, 30 years. Mm. You know, since nineteen sixty six. You know, for, um, I'm, I'm not even going to. Take time up in the podcast listing German achievements. Yeah, yeah. No. But between '66 and '96, they were very, very good at reaching finals and semi-finals. But so they were probably deserved winners of the competition in the end. They beat the Czech Republic in the final. But just to wrap us up, uh, I just want to hear from you guys who you thought the, the best players of this tournament were, or the kind of most iconic players. Um, well, I mean, Gaza for sure. Uh, I mean, I think I think you remember the moments, really, don't you? Uh, you remember Gaza. You remember Baborski. I say I remember Shuka. Um, probably the player of the tournament was Matthias Sammer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was excellent in that tournament in terms of leading that Germany team and, and just being great defensively, but also just uh, starting their attacks and being so good on the ball. I think he 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 won everyone's respect in that tournament for just how how good he was. And in terms of yeah, who who had the most influence in that tournament? It was Matthias Sammer. I mean, the guys are things interesting because uh, I think there were calls after the Switzerland game for him to be dropped, and I think Stuart McCall um, says it says in this that. Had uh, Gary McAllister's penalty um, gone in, then the Scotland players were expecting Gaza to be um, substituted. Right. So that would have been, you know, just over a match and a half, and he would have been probably that might have been the end of his tournament. Yeah. Uh, the penalty saved, and he goes up the other end and, and, and scores, and and suddenly he's been talked about as one of the great um, players. So I think it is moments rather than. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. I, I would agree with that, Chris. Uh, Said it, it's a tournament of moments. Now that could be because you uh, you're younger and you don't remember as much of it, mm. but I'm older and I remember a lot of it. And it was a tournament of moments. It wasn't a uniformly brilliant tournament. Mm. Uh, I think I think I calculated that Euro 2000 had 25 percent more goals, and nobody remembers that. Yeah. Um, it's obviously it's remembered in England because of England's moments, but as a tournament, it was a tournament of mo- all tournaments are tournaments of moments. But you know, you got Paborski and you got Suka and you've got the Gascoigne goal. Um, it wasn't a uniformly good tournament. Germany were not a very good team, they were just a very 
efficient, it's <laughs> efficient <laughs> yeah. with Germans, but you know, like um, like a Mourinho team, mm. they were very good at getting results. <laughs> That's not as good a reference as it used to be, but you know what I mean. Well, there'll be more about that in time, I'm sure. Um, as and as for the, uh, I hate to hate to keep saying I agree with Chris because <laughs> he's an en- enormously egotistical man. <laughs> um, but um, I, I don't. I think Samer is underappreciated in in the in the tide of history yeah. because he was had Franz Beckenbauer not existed, he would be very better regarded. Right. Uh, um, he was. It, it's a. Com- it's. There was a conversation the other day about what defines a Rolls Royce of a player, and it's got to be somebody that moves smoothly through the gears. He's physically imposing, uh, not you know that costs a bomb mm. <laughs> necessarily, and it's hard to get through an MRT. But um, he was a wonderful. Uh, he was the last great liberal, liberal. Um, but he was also the the last because the Germans had always used that system with the back mm. three and a guy coming out of it. Uh, and, and England tried to do that with uh, Rio Ferdinand thereafter until, again, hiring Sven, Sven Goran Eriksson and going back to good old 4 4 okay. um, But Sammer was just an immaculate player. Mm. He, he just seemed to move on casters and be everywhere and just smoothly moving around and setting up attacks. And, and he was a pleasure to watch, and I think he's been unfairly kind of ignored. He, he, I think there's only him and Cannavaro have won... Um, the Ballon d'Or as defenders mm. in a very long time, or for a very long time, but they were mm. the only ones to win it. But in conclusion, uh, summer of moments of love, which <laughs> probably not as good a headline. Uh, but Gary, Chris, James, thank you very much. Thanks to Gary, James and Chris for joining me today. Next Friday, we'll be discussing Paul Gascoigne and Gareth Southgate, their contrasting characters, careers and experiences of Euro 96. Don't forget you can subscribe to the magazine now at myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash fftpod20 and the Euro 96 special is in shops now. The music you've heard is from Howell Griff and like this podcast is available on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.